uh, getting towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So, actually, we're we're there, but some of this is still Sermon on the Mount to me. The sermon goes on the verbal communication. We're in verse twenty-three. Everybody knows this one well. A lot of you grew up in Sunday school. This is this is right up there with Sunday school stories. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. I want you to go also to Mark 4. Um, so keep your, your finger on both today because uh, this narrative runs in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're not going to look at Luke's, but Mark, he's usually the most brief with everything, uh, but he's actually got, um, he actually adds a few things that Matthew and, and Luke don't into this story. So we're going to kind of peek back and forth at, at both of them, even though we'll primarily be in Matthew. So, uh, so Mark uh, 4, and we have uh, his account starting in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he, that being Jesus, said, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, uh, they took him with, uh, sorry, leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this? Uh, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So um, keep both of those available to you. And what we have in the story is we have all the usual suspects, right, that we usually have present um, here that we would expect. We have Jesus, we have his disciples, but there's this other character that's like super common. Uh, through the Gospels uh, and the stories and the narratives of the Gospel, uh, which is a boat. Uh, like a boat's actually like a bigger character uh, in the stories of Jesus uh, than we, we think it is. Um, and it's easy to overlook. But the, the boat was an important character uh, to Jesus um, as far as transportation as well as for communication, right? So like if we go to a place like Mark chapter 3, don't go there, but uh, uh, verse 9 uh, which I think I can read to you real quick, we see something like, like this. Uh, when he told his disciples to have... Uh, actually, I'm going to go back to 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd. Because of the crowd, lest they, what, crush him, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. 
And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of, surely you are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And what we end up seeing is the boat's not just a form of transportation for these guys to get from one end of the lake to the other, but it's actually a floating pulpit. Um, and it's a safe place. So what we have is so many people coming to him that he needed a place to be able to stand where he wouldn't get harmed because they would press in. So the answer was, the solution was, a boat just offshore where he could stand and he could preach and he could teach and he could be heard without being harmed or crushed. And this boat became basically like a, a floating pulpit for Jesus. And uh, we're going to see the same thing today in the narrative that we're in, um, where it's basically a, a, a moving pulpit, a bolt pulpit. Um, and this one that we're going to see today is not so much a verbal sermon that we're going to hear Jesus give from the pulpit, but uh, a, a demonstrative one. Um, and so we have a sermon preached today that is uh, demonstratively from this floating pulpit. Uh, so the boat is representative of that which is safe, that which is educational, that which gets us from point A to point B, but also that which we hear sermons from and we see sermons from. Um, and so this is another character. Now let's go ahead and just start with the facts, like if we're reporting this story on, on the 5 o'clock evening news, uh, what it might sound like. There's a couple things here that we can just deal with uh, right from the beginning. Number one, Mark says... Uh, in his account, that it was evening uh, when this went down. Why does that matter? Well, because uh, there was typically less wind, okay, like, like most bodies of water, uh, less weather, less turbulence on the water during the evening hours for traveling, uh, for seafaring, for fishing, which these guys uh, were first and foremost. So um, the topography um, on Galilee is one that lends itself to really bad winds, really bad weather patterns, the way that it's surrounded by the mountains, the way that the wind comes through and hits the ocean, especially during the day. It becomes extremely unpredictable, extremely sudden, extremely violent, the way that uh, the weather uh, handles itself. And so most fishermen on Galilee would fish in the evening or early, early morning, uh, to avoid the crazy weather. It wasn't just because the fish were hungrier. Uh, it, was, it, was so, it was actually safer to be out on this body of water um, in, in the evening. Um, so early morning, late evening were ideal targets for the, the boating, the fishing, which is, I think, why, why Mark's account includes it. There were multiple boats even present at the time. That's when most people would be on the water doing what they were doing, traveling to where they were going, even though I think they were definitely following Jesus. I think we get that from the text too. So um, this is also why the disciples would not have challenged him uh, in getting into the boat or had a problem with departing uh, with him at the boat at that time. So fact number one, it was evening when this went down. Number two, this was a serious storm. Okay, like I don't know if you get that from the text, uh, uh, but I get it from the text. Like this was kind of a big deal. It wasn't just kind of a bad one or, or kind of an unusual one. Like this was um, a, a serious storm. And we might be tempted to think that it wasn't that serious of a storm because uh, Jesus is sleeping, right? And of course, we're, we're going to get to this. Um, but uh, yeah, Jesus wasn't exactly a, a, a novice when it came to knowing what was possible on the Sea of Galilee, right? Uh, but um, this, makes, this, this makes certain to us because he was sleeping that this was a serious storm. Um, and um, 
The reaction of the disciples also lets us know that this was a serious storm because these guys were not novices. They were mariners, like they were veterans. They were, they were very seasoned fishermen who spent almost all their lives on this body of water. They had probably seen it all, experienced it all. And they're tripping, right? Like they're, they're, they're coming undone. Um, so, so, so we know that this is not a usual, typical, um, ordinary uh, storm that's going on, but that what's happening was indeed extraordinary, like exceptional as far as the storm. Number three, the storm appears to be winning, all right, in our story, and the boat appears to be losing. Now, we already talked a little bit about the boat. I want to talk about the boat uh, a little bit more um, because archaeologists uh, recently made a discovery in uncovering a boat on the shores of Galilee fully intact, fully intact, which is super cool because that allows us to get an idea, a pretty accurate idea of what their boats were actually like. I don't know if you've ever thought that when you read narratives like this in your Bible and you're growing up hearing the Sunday school stories. These are some of the questions that I think come to mind are like, well, well kind of matters like what this boat was like, like the size of it and how it was built. And it kind of adds a little something. So they found this boat and they dated it to be about first century AD. So it would have been about the time uh, that Jesus uh, would have lived and been on one of these boats on uh, this sea. And from this discovery, we have an idea of the size of the boat that it would have been, that he would have been on during this storm. And its dimensions of the one that they found are roughly 27 feet long, uh, roughly 14 feet wide, and roughly 4 feet high. So, so this wasn't like a little trolling boat, you know, like Craig's, like we might take out onto the river to catch some trout one morning, um, like that's maybe like a 12-foot or something. It's, it's bigger than, than, than that, but it's not a boat like we might take deep sea fishing that can like handle business on those waters, right? Um, it was definitely smaller than that. It was quite small. It was quite vulnerable, four feet high around, around the edges, right? And Jesus, we are told, would have been in the stern, sleeping, which if you know anything about boats, is the back of the boat, okay? Um, which makes this, this narrative a little more absurd to consider when you consider how serious the storm was, how small the boat is, and what Jesus is doing, right? This is what makes it so interesting um, and kind of ridiculous. Uh, and Mark tells us, of course, that uh, nonetheless, he's on a pillow, He's on a, a cushion. Um, now, purely humanly speaking, this is a gift, okay? Uh, to be able to sleep anywhere at any time, uh, no matter what's going on around you, is a gift. Uh, I know because I grew up watching my dad have that gift. Um, my dad is a guy that can sleep anywhere, anytime, no matter what's going on. He can close his eyes and, and be out, out. Like, not kind of out, like he, he has no idea what's happening around him. We saw this once at Disneyland years ago uh, when it was just, it was the busiest day and people were everywhere and a couple people were, were want, a couple of us needed to go to the restroom and there was this, this one little section that didn't have people crawling all, all, all over it like ants that was just a, a slab of concrete and he tucked himself onto that slab of concrete and it's just chaos, it's just noise, people going everywhere, kids crying, kids laughing, you know how it is. And he, and he lays down and he's out and I'm watching him and he's just, he's just content as can be, just sawing logs in the middle of this absolute maelstrom of Disneyland. 
you know? And um, so he, he, he definitely uh, has this gift. So, so um, we, we have this, this storm, which is not small, uh, but is strong. It's serious, so serious that nobody else on the boat is, is sleeping, but they're stressing. And yet this is where and how we find Jesus in the midst of this storm. So these are the, this is the setting. Now for the interaction, okay? So the actual text, look at Matthew. Verse 23, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, this is kind of a cool detail to the story that might be, uh, you know, easily overlooked because it tells us why these guys were there, right? Like why these guys found themselves in the predicament that they got into. And as we can see, they did not find themselves in this extraordinary, dangerous storm because they were bad or because they were disobedient or because they made a stupid decision, right? A lot of us, our storms are, are self-induced in life, right? Uh, we're not always that brilliant. Um, I'm really good at making bad decisions. I'm getting a little better, but, but mo most of the garbage that's gone on in my life and the pain that's been inflicted and the suffering and the discomfort has been a direct result of my stupidity in choices. That's not what happened here. That's not what happened with these guys, but rather these guys were there and they found themselves in this, this gnarly situation out of their obedience. This is important. Out of their obedience, out of their following Jesus. That's how they got into this mess, right? Like, like Jesus led them into this danger. He led them into this difficulty. He led them into this storm that they would find themselves in. And, and I feel like you and I really need to grab hold of this. I, I mean, like we know our Bible so well, and yet we don't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like following Jesus does not mean a life of smooth sailing. It simply does not. We just like to think it does. We just hope that it does. But it does not mean a life of smooth sailing. It means a life of turbulence and challenge and rough waters. Oftentimes difficulty, oftentimes discomfort. What, what did he tell us? Pick up your cross and follow me. Now what's a cross? It's an instrument of torture. And, 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 and we're all like, yeah, yeah, sign me up. That sounds great. You know what I mean? That, that's, that sounds like it's going to be just fine. Pick up your instrument of torture and follow me. That's the message to the Christian. That's the message to the disciple of Christ, right? It's not a beach with a margarita and a cute little umbrella coming out of it. You know what I mean? Where the weather's perfect, right? Um, and and, and this, this, kind of, this kind of stuff challenges our theology. That Jesus would lead these people into... A predicament like this challenges our theology. It challenges our notions in regard to what God does and what he doesn't do with those who follow him. It challenges much of what we've been taught, right? And, and yet it shouldn't because it's dangerous to follow Jesus. And that it's dangerous to follow Jesus is all over the scriptures. It's all over everything that came out of his mouth. It is dangerous. It is risky to follow Christ. 
It's funny to me how the entire biblical narrative that we read and say we believe speaks to this cost of following Jesus, and then we spend our entire Christian lives attempting to avoid it, meaning cost. You know what I'm saying? Like like we, we spend our entire Christian lives trying to get out of it, as if it should not be so. C.S. Lewis rightly said, I did not go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly do not recommend Christianity. And that's a true statement. It's a true statement. This is why so many of us identify as Christians, but we don't evangelize. This is why so many of us identify as Christians, but when we see something that makes us uncomfortable, we run from it. We remove ourselves. We move to other states where people look like us and act like us and think like us and vote like us. But let me assure you what our scriptures teach concerning this. Christians do not run from fires. They run into them. They run into them. We do not say, oh, these people are bad over here. I'm going to go over with the goodies. We say, these people need Christ. I'm going to run into that house that's burning. They need what I have. And we don't see enough of this these days. What the disciples did by getting into this boat was good. Not bad. It was good. It was right, not wrong. Because they were following the one whom they said they followed. No matter where he went or where it took them. And this is what disciples do. They follow. And by the way, it is not a coincidence that Jesus spoke just prior to the circumstance that we have in Matthew, that Matthew records this teaching called the cost of following Jesus. This is what directly precedes this narrative that you, are, you and I are looking at right now. Okay, Not a coincidence. So on the heels of this hard teaching, this is encouraging that we find these guys following Jesus. Jesus' lead into the boat, ultimately into the storm, which brings us to the storm. Verse 24, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. To be um, swamped is to be overcome. It's to be like fully saturated. It's to be won over, basically. Uh, So this boat is losing the fight. Like the storm's so bad, um, the situation's so bad, uh, the waters are so bad that this, this boat's losing the fight. The boat is being overcome in its ability to float because it's being pummeled by waves. And again, this thing's only probably about four feet high on the outside, so it wouldn't take much. Um, I don't know if you've ever swam in the ocean. Um, I've, I've been almost uh, killed multiple times by swimming in the ocean. Uh, you get out. I just did it uh, uh, actually a couple months ago. We went to the beach. I went surfing. They looked like two to three foot faces. Um, and uh, I think they were. They weren't very big. Uh, but I nose picked on a takeoff. I kind of dug my nose uh, on this one, and it was probably a three foot, maybe a three, a four foot. And I, did, I didn't know which end was up. I was pressed down. I, I had no idea uh, which way to go. I thought I was going to die from this stupid little silly-looking sissy wave. You know what I mean? Because they're strong. They are powerful. They are really powerful. 
Um, and so you can imagine what's happening to this boat, you know, right now and what these guys are thinking. Um, these guys were experiencing the power of the waves at this point and, and they're panicked, they're terrified because they know if that boat goes, they go. Like, like that's it, right? And the boat is going and Jesus is out. He's, he's out, like my dad. He's, 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 he's out, he's sawing logs. He's, uh, he's counting sheep. Get it? He's counting sheep. He's emotionally, he's emotionally removed from the current circumstance. Okay. 25. They went and they woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, before we um, completely rip on these guys, which we're going to, <laughs> okay? Um, let's first acknowledge something that they did right besides following Jesus to the boat. Uh, and, and that is this. When stuff went down, they went to Jesus. Like when stuff went down, they, they went to Jesus. They went to the right place. Their, res, their response, their um, solution uh, was correct. Uh, why is this interesting? Well, because these dudes were expert mariners in this lake. I mean, that's why it's interesting to me. Like you would think that this thing's going down. They're like, hey, we've, we've done this 100 times. We know what to do. We know how to take matters into our own hands and, and correct this and get ourselves out. They're not. They're not getting out of this one, right? It's, it's like a, a above their, uh, their pay grade, right? But they go, they, go to, they go to Jesus because they were in a situation that was above their pay grade, their expertise, their skill level. They were out of their league with what was happening. That's what chased them to Christ. They were out of their league. And they've seen him do things. Think about this. They've seen him do things already that are impossible, right? They, they've already seen some of this. They've seen him perform signs and miracles and healings that on some level have produced some amount of faith in them. As small as it may be, we'll end up getting to that. But there's, there's something there that they have uh, in, his, in his capabilities that, that exists, that's been established, right? And so they go to him, which is, which is right, right? But the way that they go to him is wrong, is wrong, because they rebuke him. They actually rebuke him. They say, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, we may go like, what's wrong with that? Like, I do that all the time. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, that doesn't sound so bad, right? Save us, Lord, we're perishing. But it really depends on how it's said. It depends on how it's intended, whether it's okay or not okay. Listen to how Mark records their words to Jesus. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we are perishing? Right? Which, which to me sounds a little worse. Actually, a lot worse. A lot worse, right? It sounds sarcastic. It sounds a little condescending. There's frustration. There's demand. Maybe even some entitlement there, right? Don't you care that we're perishing? That, don't you care that, that you're letting us perish? Now, consider for a moment all the ways that Jesus could have answered that question. You know what I'm saying? Because I talk like this to Jesus all the time. It may not be here, but it goes on here when, I'm, when the stuff's hitting the fan. Don't you even care that this is happening to me? 
right? Think of all the ways that our Lord can answer us. Think of all the ways that Jesus could have answered them, like, yeah, I care. Like, that's why I'm in this boat. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I care. That's why I hang out with guys like you every day and night. You know what I mean? Yeah, I care. That's why I've come to Jerusalem where they hate me and they revile me, you know, and they will kill me. Yeah, this is why I left my place in glory is because I care. This is why I gave up everything that I had with the Father to become what I am now among you, to be in this storm with you because I care, right? Like it's like he can go on and on and on with all the ways that he cares and shows that he cares. And yet, often this is our accusation in our hearts and in our minds towards him and our fears, our trials, our storms, that, like here we are, right? Don't, don't you even care? We'll do something then. We'll do something then. And there's this part of us that, that truly for me, when I'm going through it, that wants everybody else to go through it with me. You know what I'm saying? Um, like, like we think that if someone really cares about what we're experiencing, they'll be as worked up and as anxious and as crazy as we are about that thing. What's the old saying? Like, misery loves company? You know? And, and, and when someone's not, it might bother us a little bit. We might take offense to that. Because it makes us think that they don't care. Or that they're cold or that they're indifferent. So, so when we're going out of our minds over something with anxiety and worry and fear, and we find someone sleeping on the boat, like, like resting, unconcerned, that might get us going. That might set us off. It's easy for the one who lacks faith in the moment to get upset with the one who has some. And this is somewhat of what we're seeing here. In fact, this really is the story. And the lack of faith in their current circumstances causing them to question their insurance, their assurance in the one that has assurance in the circumstance. Right? Their circumstance is causing them to doubt and question that which Jesus had already declared to them would happen, which was what? Mark 4 starts with this. Let us go over to the other side. That's what Jesus says. Let us go over to the other side. They're thinking, well, unless you start caring like we care, we're not going to make it to the other side. Right? Instead of thinking, well, this looks really bad. But he said we're going to the other side. You know what I'm saying? There's a difference. Do you all understand that this is simply the reality of what we're all dealing with right now, together, as Christians on earth? It is this, right here. A group of messed up people, anxious, oftentimes scared, who oftentimes just doubt that we're going to make it to the other side. Who doubt that he's going to make good on everything he has promised. I think it was D.A. Carson who said, the primary job of the pastor is to help the Christian die well. Sounds funny at first, but think about it. And, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm one of you. 
But I know this to be true in the years that God has given me to pastor so far and work with people is that everything I do, every sermon I put together, every prayer that I, that I put up for somebody, every counseling session that I have, every interaction, really this is all about us all dying well together. All of it. To the glory of God. To know that he will take us to the other side like he has promised. So we go there well. Right? Because it is certain. And this is really what you and I are involved in. This is what the church on earth is involved in. It's a bunch of people traveling to the other side and trying to just do it well. Trying to die well to the glory of God as best we can. That's why we're here right now, a band of disciples following Jesus. We're just following them over to the other side. And as we travel there, storms arise and present themselves to us, and our Jesus is showing us how to sleep on the boat. How to sleep on the boat. Unfazed, unshaken, rather than undone. We simply don't care much for it because our faith is little to nothing. Which brings us to verse 26, which says, And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus responds to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And I want you to notice that he asks the question, and then he just immediately answers it, all in the same sentence, right? Question, why are you afraid? Answer, you got pretty much no faith. <laughs> I guess that's it. It's all right there, right? So, so, like he, so like he rebukes them back, right? They rebuke him first, and then he rebukes them back by exposing the real issue, which isn't the storm. The storm is not the real issue. It's the lack of faith is the real issue. And then he rebukes the storm. Then he rebukes the thing that's gotten him all worked up, right? In Mark's account, it says that he turns... And he rebukes the wind and he says to the sea, peace, be still. Peace, be still. And it says that the wind ceased and there was a great calm across the water. Everything stopped. Right? Now, this is just kind of odd, isn't it? Uh, I, I mean, like, like in a way, this is why smart people and educated people and intellectuals and logical minds make fun of Christianity and make fun of our Bibles right, is because of things like this. Like Jesus speaks to the elements, right, and they obey him. Huh. You know? Like, like, like they can't hear, you know? They, they, they have no, uh, the, the wind can't hear, the water can't hear, they have no ears, they have no minds, they have no ability to perceive, right? And, and yet he speaks to them to bring about a desired behavior, and they listen. They submit to him. Calvin says, concerning this, it's not that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reaches the very elements which are devoid of feeling. I'll say it again. It's not that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reaches the very elements that are devoid of feeling. Does this sound right to you? Um, do you know this well in your own life? Oh, you of little faith. 
uh, because I do. I, I know that this is exactly the explanation for why I stand in front of you doing what I do, saying stuff that I say today as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, because this is true, all right? Because Jesus won me just like this. Uh, he rebuked me, he calmed me, he subdued me by the power of his word. By the power of his word. By the power of his determinate will and word, he spoke out to me. And it was so. It was so, right? Like, Lazarus, come forth. Now, what part does a dead man play? in any kind of action or response. There's nothing there. There's no perception, there is no hearing, there's no ability to think or reason or respond. And Lazarus, dead, in the tomb, three days, stinking already, had no choice but to get off that slab and walk out of that tomb. Because Jesus stood in front of it and said, Lazarus, arise. This is why I'm here. Because my Bible tells me that I was a dead man prior to this. Dead in my sins, dead in my trespasses, I was Lazarus. And so were you. And because Jesus stood up and he looked at me and he said, peace be still. I exist today like I do, believing what I do, saying the stuff that I do, living like I do, because he has brought me to life by the power of his word. This is how it works. This is why none of you ever should be ashamed or scared to go out and share Jesus with people. Is because it does not depend on your ability and your power. It depends on his. There is confidence in the gospel, the spoken word of Christ to raise the dead. And he has imparted, he has entrusted it to us. We're just the mailman. We're just delivering, we're just sticking mail in the box. And he does his deal, right? And this is really what we're talking about. That power he has not only over people or demons or illness or whatever, he also has it over nature. And these guys are seeing that right now. Oh, oh, wait, like he, he, he's, he's Lord over everything. Everything. There is nothing that is not part of his jurisdiction that he has authority over. It's everything. That's the God that these guys had in the boat with them that day. And it's the God that you and I have in the boat with us. That one. Do you guys understand this? Okay. Let's keep going. Let's go, go. The Israelites had this one leading them, this authority leading them, guiding them through the wilderness to the promised land. You and I have the same. God over the storm with us. God over uncertainty with us. God over trial with us, right? The sovereign, the sovereign one over all that exists, unfazed, calm, cool, collected, right? Fully in control of the situation, fully in control of the outcome. And he's showing us how to sleep on the boat because this is true, right? And, and church, like, we need to know this right now. 
like we've always needed to know this, but like I've never seen so much chaos and turmoil and fear and anger in the church in my entire life than I have over the last five years when it comes to our politics, when it comes to COVID, when it comes to wear a mask, get a shot, don't wear a mask, don't get a shot, all this junk that is constantly whirling around us in this world. And to see the way that Christians get so worked up, like buy into, like cannonball into the middle of all of this stuff that is just temporal, that's just, that's just going by. And, 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 and hardly anyone sleeping on the boat. We're just so worked up to where we're even, we're even, there's even more schisms and more fragmentation going on inside the church because we can't agree on these stupid little superficial things. We lose track of the larger picture. Good to see you, Tom. Wouldn't you agree? Sure, let's talk about it afterward. Go. And it is good to see you, Tom. <laughs> you guys know what I'm talking about? Like, like this, is, this is Satan's greatest work. This is his biggest ploy. Is to take all these things outside. What's going on with legislature? You know what I mean? What's getting passed? What's not? Who's going to get into office? All those things are rad. Like, they matter. They're things that are, that are underneath God's providence. But they're underneath God's providence. This is not the kingdom. It never will be, no matter who gets into office, people. This kingdom's coming, and that's the one he wants us to be about. And if we know that, if we know that it's not about this kingdom, but it's about this kingdom, we will sleep on the boat. We will sleep on the boat. And people will look at us and go, what the heck's wrong with you? And you'll be like, I'm, like, I'm, gonna get to the, I'm getting to the other side no matter what. That's, I guess that's what's wrong with me. Like, I know I'm getting to the other side. I know, I know all this is going to pass, and everything that's right, everything that I could ever possibly hope for, will be eternally established. Like, I know it. That's why I'm sleeping. That's why you should be sleeping. It doesn't mean don't ever uh, activate anything, don't ever vote, right? Don't ever say what's right or say what's wrong. I'm not saying that. I'm saying do not let that overcome you. And steal your joy and your identity of who it is that Christ has made you. You can sleep on the boat and be effective. At the same time. Jesus shows us that right now, right? That's what we're talking about. 27. Actually, um, like, like I, I want to go back to just what I said earlier. Like, like, like a lot of times the, the boat was there for him to preach sermons from, but not, not all those sermons that he preached from this boat were vocalized. That's what I'm talking about. Like, like this, is a, this is a sermon for us. That's a demonstration from this boat. And, and this sermon is titled, How to Sleep on the Boat as We Get to the Other Side. Okay? Now, verse 27, undoubtedly the most important piece of this right here, the last verse. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who is this guy? Like, who is this Jesus? Who do we say that, that he is? What do we believe about him? What sort of man is this? 
There is no greater question that exists for mankind to grapple with than this one. Who do you say that Jesus is? It all comes down to this. Even as established followers, even as Christians, you and I, um, <clears throat> there remains no greater ongoing question for us than this one, right? Because Jesus is not only the one that calmed the storm, he's also the one that created it. He's also the one that created He's not only the man who relieved them from the storm, he's also the one who led them into it, Right? This is the part that bothers us, I think. And it, and it bothers us because it's the part that reveals our unbelief, our faith deficit. He is the one that caused the natural storm that day, as well as the spiritual storm that raged inside of these guys as a result of it. He calmed the sea, but stirred them up first. On purpose. Why? Why would he do such a thing? Why does he do that to us in our lives, right? So that, at the end of the day, we may ask, once again, who is this? And answer it. That's why. So at the end of the day, at the end of the event, these guys may say, who can do such a thing? Who can do such a thing and have it settled once again? They have it settled once more. That it's that their eyes may be fully fixed, not partially or selectively, but fully on Jesus yet again. Right? That they may be firmly fixed on who he is rather than what their circumstances are. And, and, and what was the result? What was the effect? Awe. Oh, worship. They marveled. They marveled at him again. When was the last time they marveled at him? I don't know. Was it when he fed the 5,000? Maybe. Was it, was it when he healed the last person that he healed? Maybe. But, but they're marveling again. They're marveling again. They're worshiping they're, at, at his overwhelming majesty of his power, the glory of his authority, the validity of his headship over all things. They're amazed again. That's the result. That's what we're talking about. And that's where the money is, people, in our lives as we go across to the other side. Constant amazement at the one who bought us. Over and over again. Which will every time dwarf the storm, no matter what the heck it looks like. So here's the deal. In every storm, in every trial of our lives, there's an opportunity, an opportunity for us to rediscover the greatness of God. Which means that the cost of following Jesus is ultimately not much of a cost. It's more of a payout. Honestly, it's more of a payout. An opportunity to wonder at Jesus yet again, to be amazed with him and his gospel victory yet again, to know for certain that he's perfectly guiding us to the other side yet again. Suffering is something we despise, but suffering is something we need in order to fully know this. Right? Because it's the trials that press us into his side. It's the trials that press us into our dad. It's when things get to just like these guys. They knew what they were doing on a boat. They weren't stupid. So he gave them something that they were unable to do themselves. Why? 
so that they would go to him. Right? I mean, we see, we see this over and over and over again in the scriptures. We see it everywhere. Right? It's the trials that press us into his side. Spurgeon once said, I have learned to kiss the waves that slam me into the rock of ages. I have learned to kiss the waves that slam me into the rock of ages. He welcomes them now because of where he knows they take him. There's a hymn that we all know. This was one of my favorites. And, and the hymn writer toward the end of his life kind of lost his mind a little bit uh, and said some stupid things. And so people kind of question him, but I do not question where his mind was and where his heart was when he wrote this hymn. And it's a guy named Hor Horatio Spafford. You've probably heard the story. The song is, It Is Well With My Soul. It was written because he sent his, his wife and his kids uh, ahead of him from Chicago to England, to Europe, to move, uh, because he had to stay back and, and, and button some stuff up. And, and that ship goes down in the middle of the Atlantic, and he loses his entire family. And so a year later, when he finally decides, well, I guess I'm going to head over now, they take that same path, and when he gets to about the spot where that shipwreck happened, the, the captain let him know, and he goes down into the, 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 the belly of the ship and writes this hymn, It is well with my soul. When peace like a river attendeth my way, sorrows like sea billows roll, right? Whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. How can a human being say such a thing when he's gone through what he's gone through? How can you do that? Well, you can do it only if you're a human being that has been pressed so hard into Christ that you have ultimately answered the question, what sort of man is this? See, we don't, we don't need another Sunday school lesson that says Jesus fixed that storm, so he's going to fix the storms in your life too. He'll do, he'll do that sometimes. It's not completely false, but we don't need that. We don't need that emphasis, people. We really need a narrative like this that assures us that Jesus is enough, no matter what, in all of it, and that he knows exactly what he's doing through all of it. Through all of it. Calvin said, the sovereignty of God is a pillow that I lay my head on. And I agree, amen. There's a lot of people, a lot of Christians that don't like the sovereignty of God because it implies that he does things that we don't agree with. Okay, newsflash like, it's true. He does things all the time that you don't agree with. And praise God. Again, Lazarus. I would have stayed dead. God said, no, you're mine. I'm doing something else with you. The sovereignty of God is a pillow that you and I can lay our heads on. No matter what we're going through at any time, it can allow us to say, it is well with my soul, and sleep on the boat as we get to the other side. Jesus is not just our janitor. He is not just our sweeper. He's not just our genie or our butler. He's our advisor. He's our teacher. He's our caregiver. He's our guide. He's our shelter, our peace, our comfort, our safe place, our light when every other light in the world goes out. Our victory. So whether it's cancer that overtakes our bodies or loved ones that get taken from us too soon or finances that get depleted or a country that appears to be going down the tubes, the storm itself is the opportunity to marvel at him once again.
Lord, thank you so much for just what you did while you were here and that it was preserved and recorded so that we, thousands of years later, can marvel at you just as they did that day when you said, peace be still, and everything went quiet. That we can experience that too, God. And we believe it. As little as our faith is so many times, God, we thank you for gifting us with some. We thank you for being the object of our faith. We thank you that you are trustworthy no matter what occurs in our lives at any given moment. You do not change, and neither does what you have said. And so we thank you, Lord, that your promises are solid, eternal, unbreakable, irrevocable. 